Most people, whether Christian or not, would agree that the book of Revelation is an intriguing book. It's an interesting book. But it is a very little understood book. And for that reason, many of us have pretty much shied away from it, saying, I, I can't understand it, it doesn't make sense, and who knows what it really means. Well, here at Perimeter, we're trying to put an end to that lack of understanding, and it would be my goal that when this series has ended, that we're going to be able to say, I understand the book of Revelation. It makes sense to me now. But more importantly to me than that is that you are going to be able to say because of the truth of this series that I have learned from this word, my life is different now and it will always be different. A man came to me last week after one of the services and said, Randy, I took your recommendation and I read the book more than Conquerors that you had recommended. And he said, I want you to know my life will never be the same. I believe him too. I think what he learned through the study of Revelation is going to set him free in a new way he's never experienced before. And even we find in Revelation 1 where God promises now you heed the words of this revelation and you will be blessed it does happen we have just gone through a mini series that has introduced what now I call the series the rest of the story the rest of the story is a series through the book of Revelation beginning in chapter 4 and taking us through the very end in chapter 22 that three-part series we have entitled Keys That Unlock Revelation. It's a mini-series. It's just a preparation series to say now, having gone through this, we're ready to look at the text and hopefully put it into perspective with understanding. If you look in your insert, you find an outline that I have given you so you know where we are and where we're going in this series. Each week you'll be able to figure out what your assigned reading should be if you would plan to read ahead so that you might better know what we're talking about. In the keys that unlock Revelation, we've covered the rapture, the second coming, and the judgment. In keys, what we call one through eight. Then in nine, the last days in the millennium. And then number ten, the tribulation and the antichrist. Now that should serve as a great preparation for you now we come to the rest of the story. If you were with us in message one of this series, we dealt with the throne and the scroll. The throne and the scroll suggesting that God has a plan and God is in control. Let's review that briefly. Because when now we come to the seals, God is executing his plan we're going to say, I don't understand the seals. What are they all about? Well, here's the background. Chapter 4, we find God seated on his throne. John, the apostle who writes this under inspiration of God, is taken up to see in vision form the throne room of God. And there God sits, and he's described in all of his glory. And so we would say, well done, good till we come to chapter 5. When we come to chapter 5, there's a bit of question in our mind because John describes what he sees with 
God in a scroll in his hand or a book, and it is sealed with seven seals. That's where we get the term, the seals, of chapter 6 and 7. And he is so concerned, he begins to weep bitterly. That's interesting. Why would he weep so bitterly? Because he understands that this scroll, written on the outside and the inside, full to completion, nothing more can be added. This represents the very plan of God. This is his decrees. Decrees refer to that which is God's plan, which is inclusive of all things and all people for all times. And John, coming out of a world of tribulation, many of his friends being martyred, he is in exile at this point. He's watching the church and probably nervously wondering, is the church going to make it? Is it going to be okay in its infancy? And he's taken to the throne room, and perhaps at first he thinks, yay, God is on the throne, good news. But then he understands that that scroll can't be opened. And when he hears that, he knows what that means. You see, when that scroll is open, he knows at that time the universe will be governed in the interest of God's people. I hope you never forget that. The world is ruled, it is governed with your and my interest as Christians in his mind. It won't appear that way as we walk through these seals at first. In fact, many of you seekers are going to have a thought, well, if this is true, why would anybody want to follow that God? You just wait till the end. But John sees... And he's concerned. He weeps bitterly because not to open that scroll means no protection for his children, God's children, no judgment on those who have been persecuting the church and will persecute the church throughout its history, no new heaven and new earth, no future inheritance, and on and on we could go. And so John weeps bitterly, must be thinking, no wonder the church is in the state it's in. No wonder my friends are dying. No wonder we're all being persecuted. Because God's plan can't be executed. And perhaps there's a sense of hopelessness at that moment until he hears of the lion who can open the scroll. And then he looks to see that lion. And he doesn't see a lion. He sees a lamb. And we know it's Christ. And Christ approaches the throne and he is now co-seated with the Father on the throne. He is to rule, and we see the picture there of the scroll being handed to the lion, the lamb, the Christ. And all of a sudden, new hope, new joy. Because now there is one worthy to open the scroll. This is the coronation of Christ. He has given his life for his own. He has been raised from the dead, and now he's to be seated with the Father in authority. And with his humility, his exaltation gives him the authority to open the scroll, to execute it on behalf of his people, the church. And now there's reason for hope, and there's reason for you and me to hope as well as Christians. We come now to the opening of those seals. Note who it is that's going to open the seals. We see it in verse 1. And I saw when the lamb broke one of the seven seals. 
And so let's look at the first of these. The opening of the first, verses 1 and 2. It's the Lamb who opens every seal, suggesting that he is in absolute knowledge and control of everything that's about to be cast upon the earth that you and I will experience. And here's how it reads. And I saw when the Lamb broke one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say, as with a voice of thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse. This is the first of four horses of different colors. This one a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went conquering and to conquer. Now we have the the first question of challenge to us here. Who is this white horseman? Who is it we're talking about? What is it it's representing? We know it's figurative, but what does it mean? And I'll suggest to you here, this is the tough one, and I'm not sure. It could be one of two different things, and I think there are only two that could possibly be it from my personal perspective. One, it could represent war. In Ezekiel, you have four woes, and it's very comparative, and it would give reason to say this would be just the war that's to take place upon the earth. Nation with nation, people against people, individual against individual. Maybe so. I will say that I lean, and it's a slight lean, but I lean to this not representing war, but representing Christ himself. The reason that I would suggest that if it be the case, is because it's in harmony with the whole context, Christ being the conqueror, chapter 5, verse 5. But beyond that, if you do word study, you find out that white is used throughout to represent that which is holy. A crown is that which Christ wears in chapter 14, verse 14. And the word conqueror that is used here, or conquers, is with only two exceptions, is always used either to describe Christ or to believers. Perhaps even more strongly than that, it's in harmony with other passages in Revelation. In chapter 19, verse 11, we read that the rider upon the white horse is the Christ. Maybe not the same white horse. Maybe it's different. But because you have such a close parallel there, it would tend to push us perhaps in that direction. And then there are many other scriptures in Matthew 10, Christ brings a sword. Psalm 45, prophetically talking about Christ as he carries his bow, and there are a number of others as well. The point would be that Christ triumphs. There's a lot yet to come. We're going to see these other horsemen as they come forth, and when we see them, they're going to grip us, and we have to remember that preceding all of this is the conquering Christ. He is the present one. He is conquering. He is ruling. He is reigning even in the midst of all the stuff we're going to see that seems so ugly. He's in charge. Now the question to you and me, do we really believe that Christ rules? Does he reign? Does he reign when your child dies? Does he reign when your spouse is diagnosed with cancer? Does he reign when you're unemployed? How extensive is the reign? A man talked to me just this morning after the earlier service. Son committed suicide recently. 
He's been grieving so deeply. He said, I went to a grief session. It was very helpful. But the leader came to a point where he said, now we know that God is not in control when these kind of bad things happen. And he went up and he approached the leader and he said, wait, what do you mean? And the leader said to him, do you tell me that you think that God has a plan inclusive of your son's death? And he looked at him and he said, absolutely, it's my hope. Absolutely. You and I have to make that decision. Does Christ reign? How inclusive is that reign? Is he in authority? Is he executing his plan on this earth? Or is it just something out of control? Well, it leads us to the second seal. Comes easier to identify. Verses 3 and 4, the red horse, referring to religious persecution, it goes like this. And when he broke the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, Come. And another, a red horse, went out. Red, the color of blood. And to him who sat on it, and it was granted to take peace from the earth. Did you hear that? It was granted. By who was it granted? By Christ. Go take peace from the earth. And then it goes on to say, and it was granted that men should slay one another. He says, yes, let it be. Let him slay one another. And a great sword was given to him. This is where many of you as seekers are going to say, uh, it's not my God. I don't want to believe in a God like that who allows this kind of problem and pain and hurt and agony in this earth. That's the God. Let me suggest to you, there are many of us that are longing for what I call a feel-good theology, and that's what we're embracing I've had this discussion with people before. I say, well, why do you believe what you believe? You don't agree with I Why do you believe what you believe? And they give me their answer. And I say, well, that's interesting. I say, now, why do you believe that that you just said? And they give me their answer. And I say, well, tell me, why do you believe that? And finally, this happened just a, a week or so ago. I said, well, why? Why do you believe that? He says, because I want to believe that. And I said, that's a good answer. I don't think it's an accurate one, but it's an honest and good answer in that sense that, sure, you want to believe it. It, it makes you feel good, doesn't it? But, folks, what we've got to do is not give up the future for a present, future, uh, a present momentary feeling. And we embrace the theology that I call a feel-good theology, and it's not the Word of God. And we miss out on the grandeur of it that's yet to be fully understood. Second seal is opened. Now, this could include war between nations, but I think there's an emphasis here personally, and again, this is very debatable, but I think an emphasis on religious persecution. The reason I suggest that is for a number of reasons. We know Christ does say, I came to bring a sword, but this particular word, slaughter, the normal term used for warfare is not used here. This one is rather a word used for the death of Christ and believers. The sword that is used here, it refers to a sacrificial knife. It would appear as if there's an emphasis here 
even on the death of believers or the persecution, the religious persecution that exists. And so the Lord breaks the seal and he says, yes, let it be. And John sees and says, now I understand the persecution of my brethren. Now I begin to see it in a better light. Then we come to the third seal, verses 5 and 6. It reads, And when he broke the third seal, I heard the third living creature saying, Come. And I looked, and behold, a black horse. And he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. In the book of Ezekiel, chapter 4, verse 10, economic hardship is described by weighing food. And we would suggest here the black horse is economic hardship. Then it goes on to say, and I heard, as it were, a voice in the center of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius, three quarts of barley for a denarius. Suggest that here it's referring to the fact that a denarius, a day's wage, enough to buy just enough food for one person for one day. Throughout the world, now as well as in the past, people's throughout who are saying I'm working hard I can't even make enough to feed my family to provide all the needs that I have enough for me maybe to eat today but what about my kids what about my spouse they eat then I can't there's just not enough I work so hard I give it everything I got and I just cannot seem to make ends meet great economic hardship it exists throughout the world and then to make it even harder we read on and do not harm the oil and the wine, two products that represent the types of commodities which are enjoyed only by the wealthy. And an interesting, they're not harmed, suggesting that while the poor struggle to earn their daily bread, the rich seem to get richer and richer. Haven't we all wondered? The rich are given everything as if they need it and therefore they're given free of charge. The poor have to pay for everything and how many of the poor have said of those that are rich, everything they do just turns to gold. Why would it be? I work so much harder. But look what happens to them. There seems to be injustice in the whole system. There's economic hardship, though I work so very, very, very hard. Well, in Revelation 13, the 17th, Verse, we read that those who do not carry the mark of the beast, that is the believer, they can't buy, they can't sell. We see that happening today. How many people through the life of these 22 years of this church have I heard someone say, I kept my integrity, but I lost my job. Wouldn't work on Sunday. Lost my employment. Kept my character wouldn't cut the corners, wouldn't do what my employer wanted me to do, and it hurt economically. While yet others, even in the name of Christ, who stand strong for him, prosper and make much. And we look at it with confusion and say, is God in control? Is this right? Is this good? Why? Notice the one that opens the seal. It's the Lord Christ himself. Takes us to the fourth seal Verses 7 and 8. And when he broke the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come. And I looked, and behold, an ashen horse. It's a greenish color. And he who sat on it had the name Death. 
And I suggest that this ashen horse we would just simply call death. And look who follows. Hades, that symbolizes a state of disembodied existence which always follows death. Hades was following with him. And know what it says. An authority was given to them over only a fourth of the earth. It's not that death is on its own and it can go where it wants and do whatever it wants to do. No, it's part of a, a master plan of God. We read in Scripture that God has numbered our days. Even before there was one of them, he numbered those days. He knew how long we were to live. And then it says, to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. Authority given to them. A week or so ago, I wanted to um, go visit my mother, and I was looking for a window of opportunity. It's about a three-hour drive for me to get to her, and uh, she was not doing well physically, and so I, I called her on Friday evening, and I said, I can get over tomorrow. I'm going to head out early, and I'll drive over, and we'll visit, and then I've got to get back in time for the service here on Saturday. And her response to me was, oh, I just, it scares me for you to, to be on the road that much for such a short visit. It's, it's, you know, it just scares me to be on the road. And my response was, well, wait. And she's a believer and loves the Lord. I said, do you believe God has numbered my days? Do we have to worry that I'm going to change that, doing something responsibly even better yet? No, I certainly, we shouldn't be irresponsible to say, ah, I got my numbers day, I can do anything. Well, no, we're to be responsible because that's obedience. But I said, I think it's a very responsible thing to me to visit you, so let's not worry about that one. A friend of mine in the church last night after our PM perspective, he walked by and said, how are you doing? He said, okay. Well, that's a signal things aren't great. So I said, well, tell me and he said, I've just been diagnosed this week with lymphoma. And they said it will soon turn to leukemia and uh, no treatment for this particular type. But you know what he said? But you know, God has got my days numbered. And I want to be as healthy and as obedient and faithful in treatment, whatever I can do. But I know this, God has my days numbered. And therefore, I can trust him. He's saying, I believe God has a plan. Have you lost someone close, someone you really love? Have you gone through that what-if game? What if we'd only done this? What if we hadn't done that? What if, what if? Be responsible so that you can be faithful to God, but remember, God is God. It's all part of his plan. We come to the fifth seal. Fifth seal reads, beginning verse 9, And when he broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain. Why? Because of the word of God and because of the testimonies which they had maintained. This is referring to Christian martyrdom. Christian martyrdom. The fifth seal. Now we have moved away from the horses that are on earth and now we're in the scene of heaven. And they, the martyrs, cried out with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Now, folks, I suggest that they are not crying out saying, I want personal vengeance. What they're saying is, I want there to be retribution for your honor and your glory. 
knowing that God's righteous sovereignty will never shine in its full luster without such retribution. It will come. It will come. Folks, it's not that these martyrs are saying, oh, I wish it hadn't happened to me. In fact, the martyrs are honored throughout the Scripture. I suggest they're in heaven and they're saying, I am privileged and happy to have been one of the martyrs. But note what it says as it follows. Verse 11, and there was given to each of them white robes representing the holiness, the righteousness that's theirs in the heavenlies and they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed even as they had been should be completed also tells us God knows exactly he's got the plan of all the martyrs that will ever exist throughout history at Columbine High School last week you remember the story we've all seen it on the news read about it there's that little girl young girl and the killer comes up to her and says, are you a Christian? Now, I didn't hear that he asked that of everyone that he shot. I would just suspect he knew something of that girl. Maybe he knew her. He knew her claim to be a Christian. And he was seeking her out. Among others, maybe not as an individual, but Christians. And says, are you a Christian? And she says, yes, I am. Bang! At that moment, in her white robe, she rejoices. Not to say, get him back. Let your retribution come. It's not what she would be saying now. She'd be saying, oh, God, for your glory, let your name be cleared. Let them, let them pay for your glory. He has every single person detailed to the very one who are included. And he says, just wait a little while longer till this is completed. Now we come to the sixth seal. And the sixth seal will refer to the judgment, as you will obviously see as we read. And I looked when he broke the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake. The sun became black as sackcloth made with hair. The whole moon became like blood. The stars of the sky fell to the earth. The fig tree cast its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. Sky was split apart like a scroll and it's rolled up. Every mountain and island were moved out of their places. And here we see six different objects of creation that are affected. And I would suggest we don't need to take this literally as this is exactly a physical description of what's taking place. Remember one of our keys that said whenever you're in the book of Revelation, you look for the one central teaching of the text? I suggest here this says it well. Here's the main lesson. That the final and complete effusion of God's wrath upon a world that persecuted the church will be horrible. That's the point. Who knows what it'll be like? But it will be horrible. And now we see six, uh, six uh, classes of mankind upon whom this terror falls. Verse 15, And the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the commanders, and the rich, and the strong, and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. Representing all kinds of people. And then note what it says. 16 and 17, And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, 
fall on us. Hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand? You know what? They're not saying, oh, keep the rocks from falling on me. Keep the mountains. Keep this. That's not, they're saying, let it happen. I would prefer death than standing before Almighty God. This is the judgment. They know what's coming. They are fearful. Seeker, so should we be. If not in Christ, this should just push us to the love of Christ to take his righteousness that we might live forever. That's the end of chapter 6. It's the six seals. There's seven, you know, and we have a whole chapter before we see the next seal, the seventh. It's in chapter 8, verse 1. A little parenthesis. We can't walk through the text. Time won't allow it. But let me just simply give you the big picture. First, we're going to see here in this parenthesis a, a time of comfort. What it, this is is comfort for the church. And so we're going to see first the sealing of the saints. Don't confuse the word seal here. Christians are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. We are sealed, protected by God. And so here's what takes place. We'll read just the first few verses. Verse 1, And after this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, so that no wind should blow on the earth or on the sea or on any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, that sun rising representing the, the hope and cheer and deliverance symbolically that's the believer's having the seal of the living God. And he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, wait! Basically, he's always saying, wait, don't do it yet. Before this full destruction that you can certainly cast upon the earth, wait, there's something to be done. Verse 3, saying, do not harm the earth or the sea or trees until we've done one thing, We've sealed the bondservants of God on their foreheads until we have sealed them. Oh, seal. Seal represents protection from tampering. It marks ownership. It certifies genuine character. And all these Christians, as this takes place, knowing we are protected by the Father, we're bought by the blood of Christ, we're assured of sonship forever. So verse 4, And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. Now if you've been with us through the study of the keys, you know that there were two charts, and one chart represented the, the more uh, modern uh, perspective that's being held today, and it has a seven-year tribulation. They would say, now here's where these 144,000 come in. These are those that get saved during that seven-year tribulation. I suggest not. 144,000, what does it stand for? Well, the 12 patriarchs representing the old, the 12 apostles of the new, multiply it together, 144. Then multiply that time, you're 1,000. We've already covered that. God owns the cattle on 1,000 hills. No, not literally 1,000, but suggesting that there's an exact large number. God knows to the very detail. We don't know, but it's large and it's exact. And so look what happens. I won't read the entire text, but you're in the same context. You come down to verse 9. He has just heard 144,000, so he turns to see the 144,000. Look, look what he sees. 
Verse 9, and these, after these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could count, from every nation and all tribes and people and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, palm branches were in their hands. Here's your 144,000. It's the church at large. They are sealed. And not only are they sealed, but we see the glory of the saints in 9 through 17. I'll only read verses 16 and 17, but here is how it concludes. They, the church, shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, neither shall the sun beat down on them, nor any heat, for the Lamb in the center of the throne shall be their shepherd, shall guide them to springs of water of life, shall wipe away every tear from their eyes. Christian, count your blessings. You're in that midst. Some of us right now are living with such a blackness in our hearts, such a heaviness, hurting and pain, struggling emotionally, physically. The good news is we've got the hope every tear will be wiped away one day, every tear. And our great king, the lamb, he will shepherd us, even as he does now, but then in full glory, now in partial glory, but then in full glory. Keep your eyes, Christian, fixed on the glory yet to be revealed. Leads us to the final seventh seal, chapter 8, verse 1. And the question may be, well, wait, if the sixth seal represents the end of the world, what could the seventh stand for? And I suggest this is eternal peace, the beginning of the world to come. And when he broke the seventh seal... There was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Now, contrary to what many people have said, this is not an argument that there are no women in heaven. <laughs> now, I share that solely out of my love for hate mail. It's gotten a little low of recent. I wanted to just add a few more. So just a joke, okay? Just a joke. But the question is, what is this silence in heaven? What is it talking about and why 30 minutes? I think it's referring to the great peace that is to come. Why 30 minutes? Well, keep in mind it was about a, maybe how long did it take? Three minutes to read this text, the story? And here, 30 minutes. Peace? Absolute peace. Here's your new heavens and new earth would be like watching Saving Private Ryan. If you and I were watching that movie, and we're at the very height of the intense conflict and where perhaps we're turning our head, closing our eyes, saying, I can't bear to even watch it. It's, oh, it's just too painful. It's too hard. And at that very emotive moment, when we think this is the apex of the, of the worst of it all, there's a break of the film. What would happen? Well, first, there would probably be total silence. And there would be a time that perhaps would seem forever, though maybe only five minutes till it's fixed. It would just seem forever. I bet there would be nothing but peace. In contrast to what we've been seeing now, we're at full peace. Here's the new heaven and the new earth. It's the great seventh seal. Now with that, we conclude.
I began the first message of this series raising the question to each of you, to what degree do you believe God is in control? To what degree? Is it inclusive of the loss of child, the loss of employment, the loss of another loved one? Is it inclusive of all the pain and tragedy and difficulties? Or do you sometimes have a theology that kind of weaves in and out of there? Let me suggest to you, God has a plan. He is executing that plan to perfection and with your and my interest as believers at heart. That is the good news. And so beware of the good, feel-good theology that I talked about. Christian, embrace the truth of God. Maybe this is the best way to describe it. I write as follows. We must never forget that God's control is such that he has determined a perfect plan which he is revealing and executing and which is inclusive of permitting and using what he hates to accomplish what he loves. And some of us don't want to think that God would include what he hates in his plan. But the reason we can't embrace it is because we have no picture of what it is that we talk about that he loves. He loves to see his own glory exalted. He loves to see our own glory. He loves to see our character molded. He loves to see us made into his likeness. And you and I don't have a good side of that one. We think about living right here, right now for the short haul, and we say, God, you must not be God if you don't do it my way. And God says, trust me, Christian. I got a plan, and it is a fabulous plan. When all is said and done, you're going to applaud me for all eternity because you're going to see how rich and beautiful and wonderful and splendid it is with your own interest in mind. The pain of yesterday will translate into the glory of tomorrow. Trust me in it. I'm your father. I love you. I sent my son to die for you that you might have the righteousness that you need to dwell with me. And I happily take on your sin and bear it on Calvary's cross because I love sinners such as you. Seeker, would you turn your heart to him? Do you find your heart open saying, I just want you, Lord, and dwell my heart. Receive him even now. Christian, if you haven't been trusting him, why don't you say, Lord, I do trust you, and I'm going to hold on to that Romans 8.28, all things work together for good to those who love him, called according to his purpose as we pray together let's pray our father in heaven we thank you that you do have this masterful plan inclusive of even those things that you hate but only for the reason that you may accomplish what you love may we love what you love and therefore may we accept what you have for us in this life our Father, I pray that you would use this new perspective to set us free for all of life. And Lord, indwell hearts of seekers now that are ready to receive you. We pray all this in the matchless name of that one with a strong arm in whom we trust, our Lord Jesus. Amen.